Good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good? Anybody got that Easter hangover? Just me? Just me. Okay. Hangover is not the right choice of words there. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's not literal. That's a metaphor. Today we're looking at a parable, a metaphor. So we'll get there. Uh, well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And for the last 10 weeks, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. And we recognize with Easter and just with people coming in and out that it might be a good chance for us to have a, a moment of a refresher of where we are in the story. Because if you've ever walked into a movie and that movie had already started, you know that you may not want to stick around for the movie. And the people watching the movie have to explain to you what's happened in the movie and it ruins the whole movie. So it felt like I should just tell you where we are in the story. So if you need a Bible, uh, would you raise your hand? My friend Miran would love to give you a Bible and you can take that home with you. And nobody will be mad if you leave with it, I promise. So by way of review, play along with me. Humor me for a few minutes. Uh, who wrote the book of Mark? Yes, brownie points in heaven. Not a real thing. It's like, who, uh, whose line is it anyway? This game's not real and the points don't matter. So that's what it feels like right now. Uh, the early church accepted the gospel of Mark to be written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As an eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter, Peter, Mark's mentor, he writes uh, for Peter, and that's where you get this authoritative first century testimony about Jesus. Mark is the earliest gospel, and 90% of the book of Mark are found in the gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, you know the answer. What percentage of Mark is in the other gospels? 90, 90, yes. See, audience participation portion of the program. What makes the book of Mark unique? Two things. One, it's speed. Uh, the word euthuse in the Greek means right away, immediately, uh, quickly. It, it happens 42 times in the book of Mark and only 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. So Mark is saying something very fast. And the second thing that's unique is that it introduces a new literary genre in the world called gospel. This is not memoir. This is not biography. This is not history. This is not drama, self-help, fable, fairy tale, or fantasy. This is gospel, and gospel is designed to focus all of its attention and all of its effort on the person and work of Christ, because something has happened in Christ that's unbelievable. It almost feels too good to be true. And the purpose is Mark is trying to get us to believe that what has happened in Christ is available to us. It's persuasion. It's testifying. It is converting. Another way to say it is the gospel of Mark is not advice. It's news. It's an announcement. The gospel of Mark isn't telling you what to do. It's telling you what's been done. And based on what's been done in Christ, that informs then what we do. Uh, so this is for the, the real brownie points here. Does anybody know when the gospel of Mark was written? Anybody? A.D. That's close enough. You get half points. Okay. A.D. 65. And the reason that's relevant is because in A.D. 64... The great fire of Rome happened, and the 70% of Rome burned, and the, and the emperor Nero, he blamed that on the Christians in a political move, which led to persecution. So the gospel of Mark shows up to Christians who maybe have been following Jesus for 20 or so years, and they're meeting underground in catacombs, and they're having to hide from the persecution, and they need good news. They need to be reminded that it's all worth it. And so the story of Mark tells them who Jesus is and what's been accomplished and reminds them of the good news that's available. And so over the last 10 weeks, we've tried to say uh, the, the, in a synopsis sense, here's what's happening. 
Mark is encouraging Christians through one proclamation. Here's the proclamation. That Jesus is the rightful and true king of the world. And he has come into the world to reclaim a people of his own that will live under his rule and his reign forever. Amen. And this story is called the kingdom of God. And you can enter that kingdom through repentance and belief. And you go, Josh, why did you just take us through all that? Well, all of that matters because today we're going to look at three parables about the kingdom of God. And without that overarching understanding of the backstory, these parables won't make as much sense. So three stories in a row about the kingdom of God. And a parable is intended to have uh, space that's mysterious and space that's contextual and space that makes sense. Um, it's like the, the saying, teach a man to fish, you know, feed him for his life, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, can, can I give him a fish and teach him to fish? Is that on the table? Or no, it's just one or the other. So there's going to be some of that where we have room here to navigate Jesus's meaning. But I think we'll see that the principle is clear and has impact on us today. So verse 21 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching the parables. And he said to them, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be exposed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is a pretty basic idea, right? Lamps have a job to do. So, so far, again, Jesus is trying to teach who he is, what he's come to accomplish, and what the kingdom of God is like, and he's using the most basic illustrations ever. So he's like, everybody has a lamp, right? And they're like, yeah, bro, like we have lamps, right? Okay, we all have a lamp. And Jesus is like, a lamp has a job to do, right? And they're like, yeah, you, you light the house with lamps. But the way that you light your house with the lamp is you put it in the most prominent place that is, is allowing the lamp to cover the most amount of square footage as possible. A lamp has a job to do, so don't do anything that would hinder the lamp from doing the job that it has to do. Don't take a lamp and put it under a basket. Don't put it under a bowl. Don't put it under a bed. And you're like, okay, that's... Very basic. What does that mean? But listen, the terminology here is important. Um, this is more than just a best illu- uh, an illustration about the best way to light your house. So uh, Jesus is not saying to his disciples, hey, uh, I've been traveling around Galilee, and I'm noticing a lot of dimly lit homes. And these dimly lit homes are really bad for ministry. I'm tired of going into houses where I can't see everybody. So could you guys Galilee and tell them to put their lamps in a better spot because the places they're putting their lamps are not properly lighting the homes. Jesus has no issue with the lamp placement strategy of homes in Galilee. Can we get that from the parable? You're like, really, Josh? I think he might. No, that's not what this is about, believe it or not. There's, in the Greek, this is more assertive and more personalized, and it might read like this. The lamp did not come to be put under a basket. That's maybe a a better, more uh, assertive way of reading this. The lamp does not exist to be put under a bed. So what Jesus is doing here is he's not talking about any lamp in any house. He's talking about the lamp, capital L lamp. And Jesus is, is in this parable, he's making himself the central subject of the discourse. And this isn't really about uh, what is the lamp, Jesus is asking the question, who is the lamp? Or I would say answering the question, who is the lamp? And you can see this in the Old Testament when the book of Psalms, that it, it refers to the word of God being the lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. 
You see the same picture in John, the Gospel of John. He picks up on this metaphor when he talks about the Christmas story, the incarnation, where he describes Jesus as the light came into the world and darkness could not overcome it. That's how he talks about Jesus coming to the world. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew records Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill and you're not to be hidden. So the implications of this principle are, are pretty clear. Jesus is saying, I am the lamp, and I didn't come here to be hidden. That's the most straightforward way I can tell you the principle. Jesus is saying, I did not come here to be concealed or to be buried in secret. I came here to be seen and to bring light to all things. I've come to shine a, a bright light to all of those who dwell in darkness. I am the lamp, and I did not come to be hidden. And you go, okay, great. That's the principle of the parable. And it seems like from that principle, then the implication is the duty and the delight of every Christian should be to take Jesus the lamp and put him in the most prominent place in their life so that as many people as possible can see his light and as much darkness as possible can be pushed back from his light. You go, all right, the parable seems somewhat easy to understand but I submit to you it is incredibly difficult to apply. Why? We live in a world that prefers darkness over light. And, I, and just before you start thinking I'm talking about big bad culture, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. We have been distorted by the original sin. And the first thing the original sin did is that put them into hiding And we still have that echo inside of us. In our nature, we prefer to hide. We fear the light. Our culture fears the light. We fear the light. If we are honest, it is much easier for us to hide your relationship with Christ in the workforce than it is to make prominent your relationship with Christ in the workforce. It is much easier to hide your relationship with Christ and on the college campus or in the, the, the coffee shop or the gym or wherever you go. It is much easier to hide than it is to make it prominent. Sometimes it feels safer to do so. Sometimes it feels safer for you to hide your sin than it is to shine a light on your sin. And you're like, that's not me, Josh. Yes, it is. It's all of us. It's all of us. It feels safer to hide than it does to be exposed into the light. But listen to me, church. Jesus is giving us a truth here. Nothing healthy grows in the dark. Nothing good grows in the dark. You know that if you've ever been out to like a farm that has got long grass growing, you see a piece of plywood, and you're like, I have an idea. Let's flip over that plywood and see what's in there underneath the dark. Prepare to fight some animal you don't want to fight or see snakes or the sketchiest, poisonous stuff you've ever seen. Or like you ever have a wheelbarrow after the winter? You're like, let's flip over this wheelbarrow and see what's going on. Good luck. Nothing good grows in the dark. And there's a promise connected to this parable that Jesus is saying, nothing in secret is going to stay in secret. It's just not. Whether positive or negative, the kingdom is coming to bear on this world. And I will be the great revealer of all things. He's clear. Jesus is saying, I am the lamp of God. And I am supposed to be made prominent in the life of my followers. I'm supposed to give light to the whole house you have to stop covering me. You should stop hiding me. And pretty quickly, that, that starts to press on us. Where you, you ask the question, 
do you find yourself making Jesus prominent in your house? If we were to go to your house and this metaphor were to apply to your house, would, would, be, would people be able to look in on your home and be like, man, it is clear that Jesus is in the most prominent place of this house and he is shining in, in front of all things. Would that same thing apply in your work? Would Jesus be the most prominent thing in your work or is he hiding? Is Jesus shining through your life and giving light to the whole world? Or is he hidden under a basket in your life? It's a challenging parable. It continues in verse 24, and it says, Consider carefully what you hear, he said. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whatever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So this is an if-then statement. If this happens, then this will happen. It, it kind of sounds like the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, Jesus says there's people that have five talents, and they need to leverage those five talents for maximum impact. The same with 10, the same with 100, the same with 500. There's a certain level of expectation Jesus has for you to shine his light and use your gifts. There's a level of expectation there. And this is the kingdom invitation. It's clear. It's clear. Jesus said, I'm the lamp, and I can give light to the house if I'm made prominent. If I'm central, then I can shine and push back darkness. But if you hide me, I'll hide you. If you push me behind the basket, then, then I can't do what I'm designed to do. There's, there's this picture of a, by the same measure that you put me on display, by that measure I will shine. My lamp shining, Jesus shining through your life, has all to do with the placement you put him in. To the degree with you, to which you set forth Christ in your life, to that degree Jesus will shine in your life. So whatever you possess in this life, are you using it for Jesus to shine? Now, if you're not careful, you're going to read that the wrong way because I think it's designed to be an invitation. This is not a threat. This is not coercion. This is not Jesus being like, I really need your help, guys. You know, I'm really struggling out here to be the light of the world. So, you know, if you hide me, I'm going to hide you too because I'm vindictive and rude and I don't like anybody. No, 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 no. He's inviting you to participate in the mission of God through the expansion of the kingdom of God for the glory of God in this world. It's a beautiful, glorious invitation where he said, you put me on display, watch how I put myself on display. You make me central in your life and I will push back darkness everywhere you go. To the measure at which you make me prominent, to that measure I will shine. What a beautiful promise Jesus gives us. What a beautiful invitation this is that you can join God in the work of expanding the kingdom by making Jesus prominent in your life, in your home, and everywhere you go. And to the measure which you do that, it is promised that to that measure he will shine. That is great news for us. That is a beautiful invitation for us. And then in verse 26, it gets down to uh, Jesus' part of this parable and his role in this. So he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seeds on, the, seeds on the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. The seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head, and as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. So Jesus says, I'm the lamp. Make me prominent to the measure of which you make me prominent to the measure of which I'll shine. Then he straight pivots and starts talking about gardening, just like you do when you're Jesus. So he's like, what's the kingdom of God like? Let me give you another parable. And he starts talking about gardening, and this is so comforting. 
I have been immensely comforted by this parable this week. Because in the first half, Jesus tells you, he's the lamp and he won't be hidden. That's who he is. And our connection to that is making him prominent in our life. And then he starts to tell us that, that if you do that, God will join you in that effort. When you make him prominent, seeds are being planted And God will join you in the effort, and supernaturally, the Holy Spirit will come alongside the planted seeds of you making Jesus prominent, because he is the lamp. And then while you are asleep, the seed will start working. (laughs) You, You live your life with Jesus prominent, and then you go to bed and rest easy. That the Holy Spirit will activate the seed, will animate the seed, and it will grow and it will bear fruit. And even the smallest seed in the ground can ultimately be massive. And this is the mystery of the power of the Holy Spirit. That God is doing something we could not do. He's using the small things of our life to, to move forward the kingdom. It is powerful and it is beautiful. And it has brought me great comfort recently. And here's why. Uh, this, this text, especially after Easter, which is typically a, a large attended Sunday gathering, especially after, um, I'll just be as confessional as I can. I'm, I'm new here. I've been here about five months. But it is, I, I'm walking into a story, and it is safe to say that Grace Church has been through a lot over the last three years. And there's like awkward silence less quiet amens, right? Grace Church has been through a lot over three years. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Amen. I'm just going to leave that awkwardness there. Don't worry. It's okay. I'll make it a little easier. Every church has been through a lot over the last three years. Every church. There, we got a real amen. There we go. All of you have been through a lot in the last three years. Amen. Okay. We got it. And what happened in COVID is most churches lost 50% of their attendance in COVID. That just happened. Um, And they could boast online numbers and all that's good. And if you're watching online, keep watching. It's great. But, but there was a loss. Something changed. And so when that gap happened, there was a real temptation for everybody to want to get back to normal and get back to those pre-COVID numbers. And so what started happening, and I even felt this temptation coming on as a new pastor. It was like, what are you going to do to grow the church, Josh? And I would lovingly respond to a kind-hearted person asking a fair question. I would say, I I don't, get to answer, I don't get to do that. Growing the church is outside of my jurisdiction, according to Mark chapter 4 in this parable. Jesus just said that he grows the kingdom, he builds the church while we are asleep. That's what the scriptures just said. Now, let me be clear. Our jurisdiction is making Jesus prominent, making sure the lamp is shining the most possible places, Jesus being in front of us all the time. We obey God's design for growth, but God in his sovereignty brings the increase. The Holy Spirit does it. Last week I was having lunch with a guy who serves in San Diego as a church planting catalyst for San Diego. And I was telling him about our story of Grace Church and how encouraged I was and how excited I was. And he was asking me, like, man, what's working? What's going on? Like, how, how can we see what you're doing there that we could do somewhere else? And I was very reluctant to give an answer. But here's what I told him. I said, there was a group of people that stuck out this hard season, right? We'll just go there. I don't know why I use air quotes. <laughs> it's, like, it's like an old friends reference. If you are old enough to know that, if you're younger, you're like, what is friends? Don't worry about it. Joey, Joey doesn't know how to use air quotes. That is not in my notes. Where was I? Okay. 
hard season, right? Whatever that is. Gosh. Uh, the, the people that stuck it out through, through the season that, that we went through, um, through, they went through, I wasn't even here. They, they got desperate for God to move. So I'm telling my friend this over lunch, and I'm like, there was a group of people that prayed, like actually prayed and got desperate for God to move. And they like skipped meals and fasted and prayed. And they wanted to see God move. And then, then we came in, and here's, here's what I said. I said, now I think we are a group of people being recaptured again by the way of Jesus. Recaptured again. I, d- I, did not, I didn't tell them that I've asked you guys to take a red pill. Remember the Matrix illustration? I didn't, that's a little weird. But I was like, we're trying to see the world through Jesus renewing all things, truly trying to see that. And I think that in our midst, God is doing a new thing, and I am incredibly grateful. But here's why this parable gives me great comfort, because it just told us the path that we play and the part that God plays in terms of the kingdom of God expanding. And we are not the ones that expand the kingdom. We are not the ones that build the church. But according to this parable, the the prescription is this. A group of disciples put the lamp in the most prominent place in their life. That, that's number one. A group of disciples know that Jesus is the lamp, and they put him in the most prominent place in their life. And then that group of disciples, they scatter seeds of the gospel because Jesus is the lamp, shining to all things. They scatter seeds with their demonstration of Jesus being the lamp and their proclamation of Jesus being the lamp. And then they pray and trust God, and they go to sleep and watch the Holy Spirit do things of eternal significance. That is the design. One sows, another waters, and God is the one that brings forth the increase. So Grace Church, here's the strategy. I'm going to put Jesus in front of you like a lot. And I'm going to put Jesus in front of myself a lot. And we're going to beg and plead for God to move in our midst because Jesus is the one that goes forward. And that is not easy. To preach a crucified Christ as the Savior of the world in modern day Western culture, 2022 America, is increasingly difficult. But we see in this parable, it is the cornerstone in which the kingdom can expand and be built. And we have to cling to that as a church and as a people. Verse 30. And again, he said, what shall the kingdom of God be like? What parable can I use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch on its shade. So Jesus is showing us a template of the kingdom of God. He's the lamp. You put him prominent in your life. If, if you put him prominent to the measure you do that, he'll shine forth. Then the Holy Spirit starts to activate the seeds that are being planted and things start to move around. And then what you see at the end of this text is the promise, the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to do something, that even the smallest seed, this mustard seed, it will grow and there is an inevitable, unstoppable nature of the growth of the kingdom of God. There is an inevitable, unstoppable nature, but we have to do our part, and Jesus has to do his part, and this thing is going to have global, worldwide impact. But remember, Jesus is telling this to his first disciples, and it does not yet have global, worldwide impact. But he's saying, here's what we're going to do. I came into this world. I'm not going to be hidden. And if you'll put me in the prominent place of your life, seeds will be scattered, and the Holy Spirit will activate those seeds, and it will grow And guys, I'm telling you, I'm using a metaphor, I'm using a parable, but I'm telling you, the smallest little seed is going to grow to worldwide impact. 
you and I are the fruit of this parable. That that little tribe and that first early church, that this thing moved forward because they did what was prescribed in this text. And it's our turn. But, but what's important to see in this text is that we have to play our part. And our part is not easy. And you're not going to like this. But what this parable just told us is that there must be a public nature to your faith. There must be. And I submit to you, it is only in the West that we have taken the public life of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus, the public death of Jesus on the cross, the public burial of Jesus, the public resurrection of Jesus, the public great commission of Jesus, the public preaching of the early church, the public nature of Pentecost, the public nature of the house church movement, the public nature of the missionary movement. We have taken all of that stuff, and in the West, our radically individualized culture have taken the entire public nature of the gospel movement, and we have said to all of them, Jesus in the early church, thank you very much for your work. I will now take the public nature of the gospel, and I will privatize it for the entirety of my life. And that's not the design. And if you do that, you're disobeying the parable, and you're not living out what it means to be a disciple. There's a public nature to our faith. Now, how do we do that? We do it winsomely. We do it wisely. We do it over the long game. There's lots of ways to talk about this. So I'm not saying that, that we should be fighting culture wars. I know some of us have watched Braveheart, and we're like, I'm going to paint our face blue and go take on the world. I'm not saying that. We're not culture warriors. And I know some of you are like, want to fight me over that. I'm sure I'll get an email. Bring it on. It's great. We're not culture warriors. But listen, we're also not submissive to culture. We're countercultural. That there's a countercultural reversal of the world's values among us, and it looks most beautiful to the world. We are designed to be a city within the city, a kingdom within the kingdom. Grace Church is supposed to be a place where the countercultural reversal of the world's values happen, and it's appealing to people outside of us. And this is increasingly important as we grow past the, the modern concept of the world. So if you'll stay with me for just a minute. There were, in the 40s and 50s, post-Second World War, there was this concept called modernism. And modernism was basically like city planners would plan cities with churches in the middle. Church was good for business. Church was good for friendships. Church was good for everyone. And, and this, this is what happened. Listen to me. I, I don't, this is not like some hot take. This is just the truth of the world. We no longer live in that place. People no longer look at the church like that's a good for the world. They're not sure. There's growing skepticism. Some of it's earned, some of it's not earned, but that is a truth of the world. And I am not for a moment telling us that I want to go back to some magical place that I don't even really think existed because in that place, cultural Christianity ran so rampant, you had to convince people they weren't a Christian so they might actually become a Christian. Okay, you got it. I'm saying there's, a, there's an exile kind of motif happening. And how do you live as exiles in a post-Christian world, in a post-modern world? What do we do in a world that doesn't engage in the same way as it used to and, and has a skepticism towards followers of Jesus? When Jesus has told us he is the lamp and he has not come to be hidden, what does that look like? When Jeremiah chapter 29, there's, the prophet is speaking to God's people in exile 
And exiles, they, they weren't at their homeland. They weren't where they were supposed to be, and they were outsiders. If you've read the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that incredible story is a story in exile. Daniel praying when he wasn't supposed to be praying, and they put him in the lion's den, and there's no lions. I don't want to tell you all the, well, that's the whole story. That's the whole story right there. I just told you the whole story. Great. He wasn't supposed to pray. He prayed. They put him in the lion's den. The lions didn't eat him. They hung out and let him pet him. It was great. That's the whole story. There, there's an exile pattern there. And so in Jeremiah 29, the, the prophet speaks to the people in exile, and God tells them what it looks like to be a city within the city. And it's a word for us. And I know many of us know Jeremiah 29, 11, but I want to read to you the context of that so that you and I can see a truth uh, about Jeremiah 29, 11. So starting in verse 4, Jeremiah 29 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If you want a fun Bible study, God put these people in exile. Just think about that next time. Uh, Maybe this is for our good. Verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the, peace of, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not, let, do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on my name and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So I know many of us know Jeremiah 29, 11, and we have personalized that, just like we do with all the Bible verses. There's a real temptation. You know, Philippians 4, 13 is not about weightlifting. You guys know that? <laughs> 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Guys, guys like say that to themselves before they go ask out a girl. It doesn't go well for them. Because <laughs> that's not what that verse is about at all. You just come back next week when we look at Jesus calming the storm, and I can tell you what that story is not about. Um, he who has ears, let him hear. Okay, great. This, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to harm you and to give you hope in a future, is not about you. It's about you being good news to a city that you're in in exile. It's about Jesus being the lamp and the lamp being prominent in your life. So if you're prosper, if you are prospering, it's not for your good, it's for God's glory. It's a part of a larger scheme saying that we as the people of God need to live for our city, not against our city. We need to pray for our city, ask God to be among us, that we live for our neighborhood, not against our neighborhood. And that is a struggle in the church. There's so much talk about the big bad world and how we need to get out of it. And I get it. It's real. There are some tensions happening that take incredible amounts of wisdom and incredible amounts of community to help you know the right thing to do. But I am saying the Bible is clear. We have to put Jesus prominent and we've got to go into our spaces thinking in our minds how can I bless this place 
How can I push back darkness in this place? How can I walk into this school or this job or this neighborhood thinking I am an ambassador of the kingdom of God? Where I go, the light of Christ goes. So look out darkness because here I come. That is the picture. So your prosperity and your personal gain and your privatized Christian faith has no understanding in the New Testament or the prophets of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You cannot have an event once a week and, and pair that with New Testament Christianity. It's not the design. It's not the design. So we do small things with gospel intentionality. That's the design. I'm trying to tell you the beautiful truth that God knows your job, God knows your hobbies, God knows your life, and God is sovereignly orchestrating events in human history so that you will meet people who are desperate to see the light of Christ shining in the darkness. That means who you meet at a coffee shop is not an accident. It means who you keep running into at the park is not a coincidence. It means who you sit next to in class might have been designed before the creation of the world. It means that God can take the smallest things possible and leverage them to grow his kingdom. But it doesn't work if you hide the lamp. And it doesn't work if you have a privatized faith. It only works if the light is shining. Now, I'm not saying be a weirdo. I'm not. But I'm saying we got to figure this out. We got to figure this out. The pastors, the pastoral staff have been listening to a bunch of sermons about discipleship and disciple making. We've been passing them around and we were listening to a sermon in this space. And this pastor said, if you're a dentist, I'm not asking you to look into someone's mouth and see a cavity. And when you see that cavity, say to them, I know that you have a real cavity in your soul. Would you like to talk about that? (laughs) That's not what we're asking. If you're a dentist, do not do that. You could be fired would be awful. If you're a school teacher, you you have to navigate this wisely. I get it. I get it. But there's a promise in this text that's so beautiful and comforting to me that Jesus is going to build his church. Jesus is going to expand the kingdom. But we can join him. Even the smallest things we do can be used by a sovereign God to move forward the kingdom. There's a guy named Brother Lawrence who used to just do dishes in a monastery. And over time, he would practice the presence of God. He wrote a great book called Practicing the Presence of God. And he has this quote where he says, you ought not be weary of doing little things for the love of God. Because God does not regard the greatness of the work that's being done, but God regards the love at which the work is being performed. You can do small things. You say, Josh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I do dishes and laundry and like fight kids all day. And every time I step, there's like a Cheerio on the ground. And I'm like, God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And you have no idea how those small things done with gospel intentionality can shine the light of Christ. That is the promise of this parable, that there is no thing too small for God to use. What an incredible comforting truth. Nothing is too small for God to use. And while you're asleep, God does his best work. What an incredibly comforting parable. This is what you read in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul says, And what you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Jesus is the lamp of our lives. And he's placed us in our places on purpose so that something would happen because we're there. 
Something should happen in North Park because Grace Church is here. Something should happen in your neighborhood because you live there. Something should happen in your school because you work there. Darkness should flee. Hidden things should be uncovered. Believers should be enriched. And this mustard seed is so beautiful that even the smallest thing, the smallest beginnings, that ultimately the gospel can move forward and God can use it for universal kingdom impact if you are faithful even in the small things. And you go, great, Josh, how do we do this? How do we do this? I get it. Briefly, here's how you do it. The, the gospel itself, even the, the message of the gospel, there's tension built into it. So here's what I mean. The missiologists say the gospel has two impulses. There's an indigenous impulse and a pilgrim impulse. You're like, bro, what does that mean? Stay with me. The indigenous impulse means anywhere you go, the gospel's at home there. Anywhere you go, it fits, it works. Your school, the gospel works. The coffee shop, the gospel works there. Pilgrim means anywhere you go, the gospel needs to correct culture. Everywhere you go, the gospel works. Everywhere you go, the gospel brings light to darkness. That's, that's the tension there. And that same thing is built into our lives, that you're in the world but not of the world. So the Bible describes you're in the world, that you should adapt to the world. You should look like the world. You should be a regular neighbor, right? The HOA shouldn't hate you, right? Like basic, basic stuff. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your business. You should work with your hands. Do what you're told. Daily basic stuff in the world. Adapt, fit in. Don't make huge waves. Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Okay, you also have to confront darkness built into the world. You cannot just fit in, and you cannot never make waves. There have to be moments where you wisely speak up and have conviction. And that is the work of your life. Your whole life is the work of being wise and shining the light of Christ while fitting in but also standing out. By being in the world but not of the world. You're like, Josh, how do I do this? I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure it out. This is the work of our whole life, that we are exiles. But we're supposed to figure this out. And it's, it's an endeavor worth giving our lives to. So briefly, here are Three basic things. Enter your space thinking like a missionary. Enter your job, enter the coffee shop, enter the gym, into your neighborhood, into whatever. Thinking like a missionary. Praying like a missionary. You go, Josh, what does that mean? I, I mean, convictionally believe that God has put you there. Convictionally. You're like, I hate my job. Okay, you may not stay there forever, but believe that God is sovereign and he puts you there. And that it is your job to bless that place. It is your job to push back darkness in that place. It is your job to shine the good news of Jesus in that place. So enter your space like a missionary. Recognize the unique places God has put you in. Convictionally believe that. Number two, work to identify and be free from the idols in your space. So here's what I mean. If you work in a place that's like climb the corporate ladder, hurt everybody to get to the top, you can't do that. If you work in a place that gossips all the time and everybody's the worst, you can't do that. If you work in a place that hates the authority and just trashes the boss all the time, you can't do that. Those are idols in your space, and you're not going to look different if you're not free from those idols. You've got to be free from the things that are being worshipped around you. If you're going to get the gospel to people, you need to be in the world. But if it's going to work, you've got to be out of this world in the sense of being free from the idols. 
There's a great quote by Alan Hurst that says, the world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. It needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ on them. We don't need cool Christians. We don't need to be a cool church. We need to be people committed to shining the light of Jesus and then trusting that he can do the work. So enter your space thinking like a missionary. Work to identify and be set free from the idols of your space so that you can actually stand out. Be in the world, but not of the world. And then lastly, remember what transforms your space is not you, but Christ in you. The same power that was in Christ, the same power that was in the early church, the same power is in you. There's no junior varsity version of the Holy Spirit. You got the same Holy Spirit. You got the same Holy Spirit that fell at Pentecost. You got the same Holy Spirit that is currently working in Ukraine, in the underground house church. You got the same Holy Spirit that's moving everywhere. That same Spirit is in you. The difference is we're not living publicly with our faith. We're not letting the light. We we put Jesus under a basket. We have to put him up and let him do what he does. And you have to see the beautiful invitation that your little life and my little life And our little tasks done with gospel intentionality can somehow be leveraged like the mustard seed. The smallest of the seed can somehow be leveraged for the kingdom of God to go forward through my life. For the mission of God to be accomplished through my life. For the glory of God to be seen in my life. Jesus is giving the disciples an invitation and that same invitation is given to us today. But the question is, are you willing to take Jesus public? Are you willing to put him in a prominent space to let him do the work? It's no easy task, but Grace Church, I submit to you, it is worth our whole life's effort to figure this out. So let me pray that we might be these kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the immense comfort we get from this parable that you tell us clearly you're the one that brings the growth. You're the one that does the the heavy lifting. But God, I pray that you would convict us in this moment, that we would feel a level of conviction for how private we have kept our faith. And God, I pray you would give us ideas, you would give us vision, you would give us conviction about ways that we can be a blessing to those around us, a blessing in our workplace, a blessing in our home. God, give us ideas on how we can make the light of Jesus more prominent in our lives. And Father, may we be bold enough to confess this morning that some of us have put you under a basket. Some of us have hidden you, God. Can we just confess that this morning? Can we repent and turn the other way and say, we're not gonna live like that anymore? And God, my ultimate prayer is that you would make us a people who desire to be used for your kingdom. That we wouldn't hear a sermon like this and feel like this is something we have to do begrudgingly, God, but this would be something we desire. God, we'd want our lives to have kingdom impact. We'd want our lives to have eternal impact. God, use us. Just like you used the first disciples, God, use us so that we can see your kingdom come in San Diego. God, we can say that that in San Diego as it is in heaven, that 
we're actively working to see the kingdom of God move in our place. God, may it be so. We pray in Jesus' name.